0: So in the previous chapter, uh, Jesus has just let his disciples know that the harvest is is ripe and ready for picking, right? But he says there's a problem, that there are workers that are needed. So chapter nine ends with, with these words, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as I was reading this, I was thinking about today and the way things are. And, and most of us um, complain about how businesses can't stay open because nobody wants to work and there aren't employees available. And and, and we kind of find ourselves, I find myself kind of belly aching about this from time to time. And um, Jesus is kind of saying the same thing about us here. <laughs> it kind of hit me like, oh man, there's not enough workers. And, and, and the, 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 kind of frustrating thing is this is really important work. The harvest he's talking about refers to people who need to hear the gospel and respond. And the workers refer to those who are willing to to go out and find those people and engage them with the good news about Jesus. So how sad is it that that Jesus has to put up help wanted signs in his churches to try to get people engaged in, in the greatest thing that we can be doing on earth? And the big question, of course, is why don't we want to get engaged? Because, and this isn't meant to be offensive at all, but in most churches, what you find are, are pretty well-fed, you know, good home-cooking kind of Christians that are taking lots in, and I don't mean food, but but spiritually filling up, filling up, filling up, kind of like a pond that has an inlet, but but if there's no outlet, it, it, it's going to get kind of stanky and not good. Stick to your notes, Brent, Sorry. So, so why? why? Why don't people want to get engaged? And, and, and there's a lot of reasons, I think, but maybe it's because they're just too busy doing other things. You know, life gets hectic, life, life gets busy, and there are times when, when we, you know, just get too busy, and, and, but, but we always do prioritize what's most important to us. Maybe we assume it's somebody else's job. I'm good at that. You know, somebody else will take care of that. There's probably somebody more skilled and better to do this than me, so maybe, maybe somebody else will get to it. Maybe it's because we know we lack the ability or we lack the courage and confidence to do it. Or maybe, and this one stings the most, it's because we just don't care that much. And I'll be honest and admit that out of, you know, all of the above, I've done. They've all been reasons for me not to get involved. Every one of those things I can, I can admit to. Now, as we'll see today, none of those reasons really hold up. In chapter 10, Jesus spurs his disciples to get involved in the mission, and I love how he does this. It's kind of comical. If you think back to chapter nine, he tells them, "Guys, the workers are few. Uh, we need to pray. We need to pray. Would you guys pray for that?" And I can see him saying, "Yeah, Jesus, we're on that. We're going to pray. We're going to pray that God supplies workers." He's like, "Great, guys, we'll pray for that." And then they probably go home before they, you know, they kneel before their beds that night. And Lord, we just want to th- remember our brother Jesus's prayer for more workers and all that. And then the next day they get together, and Jesus is like, "You guys." God answered your prayers. And they're like, this is great. And then he says, congratulations, you're the workers. (laughs) It's kind of funny, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of makes you, you know, think about, be careful what you pray for. It might just work out that way. So what we're going to see is Jesus is going to commission them. He's going to prepare them. And then he's going to send them out. And this should be a pattern that sounds familiar to us. I hope. Who knows Pop quiz, right? You guys like pop quizzes. Who knows what our mission statement is at the door? See, it's pretty nice when you have a cheat sheet. It's right on the wall. I wish my school would have been that way. Making, equipping, and sending. Are you saying I'm blocking the view? Ouch, man. Which way was I standing? We, we chose these, this very simple mission statement because we, we feel like it captures the heart of what Jesus is, is saying in this passage, but more importantly, what he's saying in another passage, right? Because this might be what some people call the first commission, but there's also the great commission. And if you don't know the great commission, you should, because these are literally our marching orders as Christians. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This commission given by Jesus is the very reason Christians exist in the world, right? So many Christians get caught up in the idea that we're, we're here for something else, uh, maybe it, and it's it's very easy to do. I buy into this as well. You know, we 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 want to put roots down here. We want to we want to live the American dream. We want to live our best life here and now. All of those things sound appealing to me. I get it. But but here's the thing: it's not why Jesus left us here. And if we're just thinking this through at all, if this is the best life, if this is where to put roots down. Uh, No, thank you. Really. I would just say, uh, beam me up now would be my preference. Just take me home because that's where our best life is. And when we get there, we're not going to miss this place. We're not, it won't even compare. So we need to, you know, kind of keep that perspective. That's where our best life is. Right now we have the privilege of letting others know about a God who loves them and who's made a way for them to have a relationship with him. And this is something we won't get to do when we're in heaven. It's kind of the one thing we won't get to do when we're in heaven. So we should feel a real sense of urgency, one, because the time is short, and two, because heaven and hell are real, and they're eternal, and and it should matter to us where people end up more than anything else. I find it interesting that we, most of us, I think, would say we believe in hell, but but we don't act like we really believe it, because if we did, I don't think the workers would be few, (laughs) you know? It, it would it would just spur us on to, to action. And Jesus is calling us to action here. And, and the cool thing is he's not only calling us to get involved, but he's also willing to join us. <laughs> he's willing to empower us to do the work and equip us to do the work, and that changes everything. So as we're going to see in our passage today, Jesus can take ordinary people and do extraordinary things with them. So Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 It says, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And it's kind of crazy to think about this list of names, this, this kind of ragtag group that Jesus assembled, because these are names hardly anybody knew at this point. But, but now some 2,000 years later, we, we, we know their names and we still, we still talk about them. And, and, and the work that they helped spearhead is still rippling, still going out. It's amazing to think about that. Now, starting in verse five, Jesus is going to give them kind of their specific instructions for this specific trip. And you'll notice that it's different from what we read in the Great Commission, um, because Jesus is going to send them exclusively to the Jews. And this is because at this point, Israel had not yet rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So so until that point, it was always Jews first and then Gentiles. And that's the pattern we'll see. So verse five, it says, "'These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, "'Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, "'but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel,' And proclaim, as you go, saying, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And then he says, "You received without pain, give without pay." So a couple of comments to make here. First, the message that they were supposed to proclaim is the same message Jesus had been proclaiming, which is, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand." Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a clear statement that Messiah has come. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he's at hand. And so that's, that's a, a big, bold statement or big, bold claim to make. And it wouldn't be out of line for somebody to say, oh yeah, prove it. Right? Well, that's exactly what they do. The apostles also do this with, with the works that they do. So when you see all of the healings taking place and all these crazy miracles happening, those were there to authenticate who Jesus was to show that he really is who he says he is. He's the real deal. And that's why those are there. These are pretty convincing proofs, by the way. <laughs> you know, these guys are just walking around doing just stuff that doesn't make sense, but it should have left no doubt in anyone's mind that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Now, the interesting note Jesus adds at the end of verse eight, he reminds them that everything that he had done for them, everything Jesus has done, everything he's, he, he's done up to this point, came to them free of charge. Therefore, it should go to others free of charge. And it's kind of sad that that this even had to be mentioned because, you know, he's getting ready to send these guys out to do crazy things. And they got a guy named Judas hanging out with him. That's That might've had something to do with it. But again, if, if I'm being true here, I, I know I got a little Judas in me. How long would it take before you're out and about doing these things for you to kind of enter into your mind? Hey, there might be a little money to be made in this. It's like, oh, you're sick and you want healing? How much do you want? You know, how much, how much, what's it worth to you? I mean, you could easily start thinking that way. And the really disgusting thing is there are pastors and preachers on TV and in big, I'm not going to say too much, but in, in big arenas right now who need to take a good, hard look at this first. There are word faith preachers out there that are profiting on the name of Jesus. They were given freely and they're charging for what they're doing. And someday they're going to have to stand before Jesus as Lord himself and answer for it. And that's a terrifying thing to think about. We should not profit from the name of Jesus, Period. Okay. Sorry. I got a little, got a little David in me there for a second. That was weird. (laughs) Every once in a while it happens, right? Um, The next section of Jesus's instructions for them also has been been misunderstood over the years. Um, Verse nine, he says, as, as they're getting ready to go out, he says to him, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Again, ends with an odd phrase for the laborer deserves His food. Now, there are some who have interpreted this to mean that Christians shouldn't have any possessions. You shouldn't shouldn't have anything. You should or if you go out on a missions trip of some kind, you shouldn't plan, you shouldn't shouldn't take anything with you, just the clothes on your back, and if you don't do it that way, you lack faith and God won't bless your ministry. Well, that's not exactly what he's saying here, I don't think. I even knew a family that did that once. They took their whole family, bought a ticket to some some country and just showed up, like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> it was kind of, it worked out for them. They, 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 they stayed alive and all that, but could have been probably planned out a little bit better than that. But the idea here really isn't that they're, um, they're not supposed to, they're, they're not supposed to stockpile before they head out. And, and some of you guys know exactly what this is like. I try to plan for every possible scenario. If I'm getting ready to go on a trip, I throw my suitcase out on the bed, and I start thinking, okay, is it going to be cold? might be cold. What if it's hot? Could be hot. Are we going to go into water? Do I need to dress up? You know, I'd start thinking about all of these weird things. And before long, you know, a two-day trip with three suitcases seems a little silly, but, but I'm, I want to make sure I'm prepared for whatever might come my way. All that does is weigh you down and slow you down. And that's really the point Jesus is making here. We see this same principle apply to church plants today, where there's this, this mindset. If you're going to start a new church, you can't just start it you got to plan for, for, you know, I know a guy that's doing this right now in Bend and, and they've been planning for over a year and they're trying to get everything situated first, make it all perfect. So you need to have this awesome arena. You got to have the best worship going. You have to have really good kids programs. You have to, you know, all the best stuff, the lights and the smoke and not really, but, but you, you know, how are you going to do church without all that kind of stuff? And the idea is that if you build it, they will come, right? So, so they got to have it all perfect. But what if we're overcomplicating it just a smidge? We tend to do that. What if it's more of a see who comes and let God build it out from there type of thing? What if we start small with very little and then trust God to provide what we need along the way? And this is kind of what we did. And I'm not taking credit for it like we were smart. This is the way we did it because we didn't know any different. But 11 years ago, we started that way in a home, in a living room. Didn't have anything. As we grew, you know, we got about 30 people, 40 people in the living room. This isn't going to work. So we found a spot well, we don't have any money for a spot. So we we talked to the, you know, what do we do, God? We want to go here. But he provided a spot for us in a pretty much abandoned, you know, building that's now full of people. But at the time there was nobody there. So we got the first, I think, three months free. And then the next month was like hardly anything. And so we were, okay, we can do this. Well, then we got there and we needed, you know, every time we needed something, God provided it, whether it was money or people or whatever. I remember a church was supporting us a certain amount. It was a big amount of money. And then they told us they were going to stop supporting us. The time had come where it was done. And it's like, well, Lord, and you know, I'm, I'm the one that panics. You know, David's like, it's going to be fine, Brent. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do now? And just at that same time, coincidentally, a family showed up to the church that started giving the exact same amount that that church had been giving us. That was a big amount. You know, again, it's just God's way of saying, Got you. I'm going to take care of this. Don't worry about it. And the funny thing is we even got a commercial espresso machine. You might remember we had a coffee house over there. We, we thought this would be a great way to engage the community. We thought God was leading us that direction. So we, we wanted to do that. Well, then we started thinking, well, how are we going to afford a commercial espresso machine? They're thousands of dollars. And we were meeting with a pastor in Bend and he was, we were talking about, I came up with what we were there talking about we got done and we were out in the parking lot and we decided to start talking to three pastors about what are we going to do about this coffee stuff? You know, we can't, we can't do this. And he comes walking and he goes, oh, I'm glad I caught you guys. Hey, I don't know if it would help, but we have a commercial espresso machine in the back room we used to use for youth and we're not going to use it anymore. Could you guys put it to good use? It's just like amazing to see how God works when we just trust him along the way, stay a few steps behind him and, and just see where he takes us, you know? So God knows what we need, when we need it and he can provide it. If we would have waited until we acquired everything to be successful, we'd probably still be waiting, especially if it was, if it was up to me. Um, I suffer from something called analysis paralysis, where I can just think about something for a long period of time without doing anything. At the end of the day, it's better to trust Jesus to supply what we need and not over plan for every possible in case of emergency situation, because it's kind of fun when you, when you see him in his power act for us. So verse 10, again, ends with this, this saying that, that's kind of interesting. After telling them not to stockpile everything they might need before heading out, Jesus says, for the laborer deserves his food. This, this is kind of neat because what Jesus is saying is what these guys are doing, he considers to be actual labor, real work. And, and he's saying that there are going to be people out there who also recognize this as work. Well, you think, what kind of work is this? Well, it's kingdom work. Well, who's going to pay for that? And the answer is kingdom people. And that's exactly what we see happening even in our church today. And missionaries do the same thing. There are people that recognize kingdom work and they want to support it. And, and it blows me away. You know, we're going to talk about it at our, at our meeting afterwards, but, but what comes in in this church? I just, it doesn't even make sense to me. We're we're just blown away by the generosity of God's people. We don't emphasize giving. We don't make a big fuss about it. You actually have to go find, you know, you have to hunt down places to give if you want to. And faithfully, God just provides for us through the generosity of his people. So I see what this, you know, really looks like. And this is the idea of what we see in verse 11, when he says, when whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. In other words, find someone who's willing to host you and provide for you during your stay. So Jesus is sending these guys out into all these towns. They don't have, they don't know where they're going to stay, but he's saying, when you get there, you know, ask around. Hey, are there people here that that seem to be waiting for the Messiah, that seem to be interested in the kingdom, that, that seem to be maybe favorable to who we are and what we're doing? Oh yeah, yeah, go check check those guys. And so you'd knock on their door and, and you'd say, hey, we're, you know, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. And it says that find worthy people, and it doesn't mean worthy in the, in the sense of like, I thought that was funny, worthy, like I'd walk in with a white glove and be like, let me just check the, di- okay, you know, what kind of meal do you have planned for me? Am I, are you worthy of me staying in your house? And that's not what he means, because he, you know, that's not at all it. it. It's really receptive. Find people that are receptive to this, and then stay with them. So in verse 12, it says, as you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy or receptive, let your peace come upon it but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That's an odd saying. Uh, We don't, we don't use that in our modern day you know, language that that's what you call an idiom. So we, you know, someday somebody's going to hear us talking about, you know, they were talking about raining cats and dogs and that made sense to these people. And it's like, yeah, we, we know what that means. That's one of these phrases here. Shaking the dust off your feet to me sounds like a, a, a cool dance move, you know, or something like that. You know, you put your right foot in and shake it all about. That's not what it is. It just, it just means it's good, is isn't it went to the club last night and I shook the dust off my feet. No, it just means wash, wash your hands of it. That, that's really kind of what, how we would say it. You can leave that town without regret. You did what God asked you to do. Your conscience is clear and you can be at peace regardless of the outcome. And you know how relieving this is for people who share the gospel to know that it's not my job to, to make somebody believe. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to worry about that. God has asked me to, to, to sow seeds, the seeds of the gospel, to make sure I do that faithfully. And if I've done that, God calls that a win, and that's such a relief to me. I can, I can have, I can wash my hands of it once I've done that. Maybe you're called to water, but, but you know who, who does the picking? Who, who actually? It's God who, who who's responsible for that to make somebody's heart believe, not us. And so, it's a it's a relief to know that because we sow, He reaps. That's the way it works. Now, verse fifteen tells us something pretty alarming about those who reject the message, um, and it should give us extra incentive to share the message with as many people as possible, because Jesus says, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, talking about those people that have rejected their message. And when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction that took place and the behavior that was going on there, we think, well, those people, they deserved, you know, to have fire come down from heaven and, and destroy them. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be worse for people that reject him. That's, that's quite a statement. The bottom line is this, there will be people who will receive us and be excited to hear the message we bring. And there will be people who will flat out reject us and hate us for the message we bring. But how great is it when they receive it? I don't know if you've ever been on the, uh, uh, you know, that watch somebody receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, been a part of that. It, It is the greatest thing you'll ever be a part of, in my opinion. Okay. So let's look at a couple of takeaways from what we've read about today. Some of this just applies to the disciples. Some of it will apply to us. So, the first thing I I would point out is that God does not call the equipped, He equips the called. How many of you feel equipped to engage people with the gospel and and to answer all of the questions they have and all of the objections they're going to have? How many of you guys are just like, I feel totally ready for that? Most of us, if we're being honest, probably don't feel super equipped. I would bet that most of the disciples didn't feel equipped to go out and do what Jesus was calling them to go out and do. This mission would have been slightly exciting, but mostly terrifying because they have literally just watched Jesus do all of these miraculous things. And now he's sending them out to do the same thing, but but here's the big difference. He's not going with them, right? So that would be like hanging out with Superman for a year and watching him, you know, run faster than bullets and leap tall buildings in a single bound and stop trains with his bare hands and then, you know, save the world over and over again. And then say to you, okay, you've seen me do it. Now you go do it. And it's like, well, there's a big problem there, isn't there? I'm not Superman, right? And that's what I could see the disciples saying, okay, we're not God. How do you expect us to do this? And it's even more sobering when you think about who these guys were, because if we're just being... Fair here. They were the opposite of impressive, right? They're they're nobody special. They're not not theologians. They're not intellectuals. They're not skilled in any of these things that Jesus is asking them to do. That would have been kind of terrifying, like I said. And I think this is how most of us feel when we think about getting involved in kingdom work. Uh, This won't be a surprise to anybody that knows me, but I am not a courageous person. I have never been described as adventurous or a thrill seeker, and I don't think I ever will. Uh, the thought of doing something like this, what Jesus is asking his disciples to do, going door to door in a town I've never been to, and just, it makes me want to throw up, if I'm being honest, and just run away and hide. Um, I, 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 my friends and family will, will confirm this. Um, not that they need to. <laughs> you guys are like, no, we believe you. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I they, they lovingly call this, the, I do this thing where I go into what they call full panic mode. And, and it doesn't have to be anything major. It can be just like going through a drive through and, and having to give an order. If I'm not ready for it, like if you've got five kids in the car and you're going to decide when you get up to the speaker, yeah, I start to get in, it gets intense. I want it all written down. I want to be able to just read down the list and I don't want any changes when that time comes. Thank you. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Solidarity. Now, you know, and and I wish I was exaggerating for effect here, but I'm, but I'm not at all. This is, this is literally, this is actually happened. So if Jesus were to approach me, if Jesus were to approach me and say, Brent, this is what I'd like you to do. I would highly encourage him to find someone else. (laughs) I I would. And and even the fact that I'm up here, I am not a public speaker. I am an introvert. The, The thought of getting up in front of people terrifies me still. And yet, you know, here I am. It reminds me of Moses in front of the burning bush. I know you guys know this story, but imagine being Moses for a minute. He's fled Egypt because he was wanted for murder. He's been living a pretty boring existence, kind of in a self-imposed witness protection program for 40 years in the the desert. And then God shows up and says, Moses, I want you to go back to the scene of the crime, to Egypt. I want you to confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And I want you to tell him to let the Israelites go or else. Keeping in mind that the Israelites are his slave labor. That's his workforce. That's That's who gets all the work done in Egypt. Doesn't that sound like an awesome opportunity (laughs) and a fine adventure? You know? No, that sounds horrible. Imagine how inadequate and unworthy Moses probably felt. And we don't have to imagine because it comes out in the way he responds to God. He does everything he can to get out of this, just like I would. So listen to these excuses and see if they sound familiar to any of you out there. They might. Excuse number one, and these are right out of Exodus, by the way. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So the first, the first card he throws down is that I'm a nobody. Who am I to do? I'm not impressive. You, you know, no good there. Excuse number two, what shall I say to them? Right? I'm not going to know what to say. I'm not going to have the right words. I don't like confrontation, all of those things. Excuse number three, suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Again, I'm not convincing why would anybody take me seriously or heed my words? Excuse number four, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Again, I'm the last person you want representing you as your spokesperson. And then excuse number five is my favorite. Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. You've got the wrong guy. There's got to be a better candidate out there for something like this. Don't pick me. I told you they sound familiar, right? Uh, these are the same excuses we all make. And I thought about this and not today, just so we, we absolve Glenn of this, but this is the same thing that happens almost every time we ask a new guy to do sharing time. It's kind of funny. We hear these same things like, you know, I'm not eloquent. I'm not, I'm slow of speech. You don't want me. That, that, and, and all we're asking people to do is get up here and lead sharing time, not confront Pharaoh, mind you, <laughs> you know, just, just so we kind of get a feel for it. But, but these are the same excuses we all make. So let me ask you this. On a scale of from like 1 to 10, how'd Moses do? That was a pretty solid 10, I would say, right? Was he the right man for the job? Yeah. Did he have the right words to speak at the right time? He did. Did they listen to him? And, and did the Israelites follow him out of Egypt? Yeah. Did Moses accomplish the work that God asked him to do? Yes, 100%. So, this is what we conclude then God can use an unworthy, unwilling, and unskilled person to do impossible things that we still talk about 3,500 years later. Everybody knows the name Moses, even non believers know this guy's name, and he didn't want to go. How is that possible? How can someone so ineffective be so effective? And the answer is, is the next observation, that Jesus delights in using the unusable. And this is really great news, isn't it? It is for me. Jesus doesn't need or even want to use like the cream of the crop or the best of the best. He wants people who will be completely dependent on him and on his power, people who know they can't do it on their own. Because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And this is the opposite of what, like his dream team looks completely different than the world's dream team. And I couldn't help but think of the 1992 Olympics. If you're a basketball person, you, you know, I don't even have to really tell you what I'm talking about right now. With America formed the dream team, and they sent this over the, the first time they let pros play in the Olympics. And we sent a team over, it was ridiculous. I mean, you don't even have to say their whole names, and you know, Michael, right? Magic, Larry. These guys went over and crushed every team they played by a, an average of 50 points. That was the margin in most of these games and in a basketball game that's huge. Nobody stood a chance, but let me let me point out when they stood on the podium to receive their gold medals, which they did, who got credit for what they did? They did. Right? It was it was their skill, it was their strength, it was their ability. No question. What Jesus is doing is completely different than that. Okay. And it's intentional because with the team he puts together, it's abundantly clear who gets the credit. And I don't mean that to offend you. It's just the way it is. Nobody's going to go like, wow, was that Brent or "Was that? No, they're going to know exactly who it was. And I love this because God will not share his glory with another, nor should he. So if we win a gold medal or we get a gold crown, you know what we're going to do with it when we stand before him? We're going to throw it at his feet because that's where it belongs. He gets credit. He deserves it, not us. And just like we saw with Moses, it's God's strength. It's God's skill. It's God's power, his power on display, not ours. Think about what Moses kept saying. All of his excuses had the same thing in common. "I, I can't, they want me, I, me, I, me, I, me. You're right, Moses. Yeah, you're not going to be able to do any of this stuff. Jesus says that without me, you can do nothing. But with him, well, that's a different story altogether. And he's promised to be with us to the end of the age. Love that. This is why Moses was able to do what he did. It's why the disciples were able to do what they did. And it's why you and I are able to join him and be effective in kingdom work here and now in the world today. And this is the really amazing part to me. Jesus wants to involve us. <laughs> you ever think about that? <laughs> Why? He doesn't need us. He could do all of this easily without us. But he wants to include us. It's kind of like when, when a dad takes his kid to work on Bring Your Kid to Work Day. I heard a pastor use this illustration one time that stuck with me. You know, that kid might just be sitting over in the corner with a, with a hammer and a block of wood, just hammering on the, you know, not doing anything. He might just be clanking on the keyboard, typing gibberish out. But he's having a great time because he's at work with his dad. We get to work with our father. We get, we get to be with him and join him in the work that he's doing. But can you imagine if you came to your kid and said, hey, son, you want to come to work with dad today and, and join me in what I'm doing? And the kid went, nah, I'd rather just stay and play with my blocks or something. That like, That would be, that'd be the worst feeling in the world for a dad to hear something like that. God wants us to get involved. He's willing to work with us, and the workers are few. So this idea that we get to help spread his fame, that we get to let people know who our dad is and what he's doing in the world and what he's done for them to be a part of that. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, that God's, God's future reign has broken into this age, that we get to, to tell people that is amazing. So this is what we've concluded so far. If you're a Christian, the following things are true. You've been commissioned, you've been sent, you've been given your marching orders, and as we've seen, he will equip you With everything you need as you go, the words to speak, the provisions that you need, the ability, the courage, whatever you're lacking, he can provide. The only thing you need to be, you know, to be effective for Jesus is Jesus. (laughs) And he says, I'll be with you. So this is good. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And I love that he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So it's like, he's basically saying, I got, I got this covered no matter what comes. The big question is, do we want to get involved? John Piper once said something that still irritates me to this day. I don't like it, and I wish he wouldn't have said it, but he did. It stung when I heard it, and um, the more I thought about it, the more it stung because the more truth I found in it. So I'll just warn you brace yourself for impact because you're probably not going to like it either. He said that when it comes to getting involved in the Great Commission, there are three kinds of Christian the goers, the senders, and the disobedient. Yeah. As we've seen in our passage this morning, being involved in this mission doesn't look the same for everybody. So so just understand that. For one person, it might be going across the world. For another person, it might be going across the street. For still another person, it might be opening your home, providing wages for the workers, food, lodging, it's not a one-size-fits-all affair. God has gifted us all differently, and we're all in different stages of life. You might be in a place right now where, where you might not be able to do a whole lot, but later in life, maybe you can do a whole lot. And God understands all of that, and He's gifted us differently. I, lo- I love that, you know, the, the truth is that everybody can be involved somehow, and that's, that's a fact. Matthew's account doesn't mention it, but the other two Gospels tell us that Jesus sent them out in pairs of two. So it's what I would call the buddy system. I don't know if you, the buddy system works pretty well. Uh, I used to work at uh, fixing copiers for a living. And uh, there, you'd always have those customers that you just didn't want to go to or a machine that you didn't want to go fix because it was going to be too hard. And my, I had a coworker, whenever one of those would come up, he'd always say, Hey, you want to, you want to go with me? He, he would say, misery loves company. I'm not trying to say that evangelism is misery, but it's kind of hard. It's kind of intimidating. So he would always say, Hey, just come with me, man. And, and he was right. It, it, it took an otherwise really crummy situation, and made it a lot of fun. And, and it, it, it wasn't nearly as difficult or intimidating when, when we did it together. So being part of the buddy system might, be the one, might mean that you're the one who does the talking. It might mean you're the one who does the praying. Maybe you're the one who provides financially. Maybe you're the one who provides encouragement, who cheers people on. We have, we have a guy that uh, on Monday mornings shoots us a text saying, I love you guys. I appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the good work. And you know what that means to us? He's on mission. That's part of the mission. Probably not all he does, but it's part of what he does. And I love it. These are all super important things. And, and, and it's cool that God has put us all in this together. We, we're supposed to have each other's backs in this, and we're supposed to, to help each other with this. The harvest is ripe the workers are few, but we've been given an amazing opportunity. And I hope I've knocked down some of the obstacles that you've put up that that have been keeping you on the sidelines, maybe. If you do want to get more involved, the very next step would be to start to pray. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do, pray. The first thing you might pray for is for compassion for those who are perishing because because compassion will compel you to mission when you have when you care about somebody and you care about their eternal destination it's pretty hard to sit on your hands it's pretty hard to sit idly by the second thing you might pray is for more workers knowing that you might be setting yourself up here i already warned you of that but pray that god would provide more workers you might be the answer to your own prayer but pray that pray that god would give you opportunities that each week he would give you divine appointments to meet somebody to engage somebody to have conversations And then trust him to come through with all that he's promised that he would do. You know, he's given us his Holy Spirit. This isn't always going to be easy. Next week, Chad gets into the section that, that, that shows that mission's not always easy. And you guys know this if you're a Christian. Taking up your cross, denying self, right? Pouring your life out for Christ. That's all narrow narrow road stuff. But it's the road that leads to such fulfillment, such satisfaction, I can't think of anything that I enjoy more than being involved in God's work and being used of him. There's nothing greater than that. There's never a time when I feel more close to God is when I'm on, when I'm doing the work of the father. I mean, we see that in Jesus as well. I ran across, I'm going to end with this. And I did this strategically because I am a crier, as you know. I found this in David Platt's commentary. And it, 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 it both convicted me and inspired me at the same time. It's the story of Adoniram and Ann Judson, who are missionaries. A little more than 200 years ago, God put it on Adoniram Judson's heart to travel to Burma to share the gospel with an unreached people group. And this was not a safe place for Christians to go at that time; the people were not going to be especially welcoming. Uh, he met a woman named Anne, and Anne had a similar heart for mission and wanted to wanted to go also. Uh, but something had to happen before that. He had to get Anne's dad's permission to get her hand in marriage to take her to the mission field. And so he wrote her dad a letter. And as a dad with f- 3 very precious daughters, it's hard to imagine getting a letter like this. He asked for Anne's or he, I'm sorry, he asked Anne's father if he would be willing to give her away, but not in the normal sense uh, that a father gives his daughter away. That's hard enough by the way. He was asking for much more than that. Could this father consent to permanently giving her away? to service to Jesus? Could he consent to possibly never seeing her in this world again? Could he consent to her being subjected to the potential danger and hardship that are sure to come with this kind of missionary journey? Could he consent to giving her very life for the lost in this world, giving his daughter away for the lost of this world? Adoniram then reminded Anne's father of another father who consented to something very similar one who sent his son away from his heavenly home for the sake of Anne, for the sake of Anne's father, and for the sake of the people of Burma. And then he reminded them that he would meet his daughter again one day in glory with a crown of righteousness for serving her Lord and for leading so many people to Christ. Whew. Anne's dad said yes. And a year later, they set sail, and Anne's da- his da- the dad would never see his daughter again this side of heaven. She did lose her life there, but as a result of their faith and their, their desire to, to go and be faithful to the mission, today there are more than 4,000 churches in Burma and more than half a million followers of Christ. Isn't that crazy? As a dad with three daughters, I would have wanted to say no. I really would have. And, and it just, the compassion for their eternal souls compelled them to do something different. Sacrifice. And and it makes me want to do the same. And I hope that that encourages you. We've got a year ahead of us right now. 2023 is ahead of us. And and the harvest is ripe. And we got a room full of workers. And I want to band together and do this well. And so I hope, I hope that you're excited and encouraged. You know, we're about to head on to our mission field again. And, And what an opportunity we have. And the fact that God wants to use us and can. I'm excited. So, Father, thank you so much that um, you have done everything for us to be able to be successful in mission work. And and Lord, we pray that we would want to to be those workers. We pray that you would give us compassion for the lost around us, uh, that that would become a priority to us, even in this year, more than it ever has been, and that you would give us opportunity that we would see more and more and more people that have no hope in this world find hope in Christ through this, this beacon of light that is the door in this community, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.